If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, please turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 5 this morning. Just two very short verses which will serve as an important reminder this week for why we celebrate this season of Christmas. And I hope you fill this week with every opportunity you have to reflect on this. Like at tonight's Christmas program and Wednesday night's reading of the Christmas story, next Sunday morning's Christmas Day service. Take every opportunity to pause, to meet with God's people, and reflect on the reason why we celebrate. See, I don't know about you, but in the middle of all the hustle and bustle of this season, the trips and activities and parties and lists and presents and people, uh, we can get so busy doing, we're not careful, we can actually stop thinking. That's never a good thing. It is important whenever we do anything to always ask ourselves, why? Why am I doing this? In our case this morning, what are we celebrating? What is Christmas all about? You'll hear a lot of answers given to that question. Some children might like to say Christmas is all about the presents. But, horror of horrors, what if no one was able to give you any? Is there still a reason to celebrate? I can't believe I didn't hear an audible gasp from any of the children. Some might say, well, you know, Christmas isn't about the getting, it's about the giving. Okay, but what if you've had a really tight year? And what if you don't have a lot that you can actually give? Is there still a reason to celebrate? Some people might say, well, Christmas isn't about things, it's about people. It's about family, and it's about spending time with them. Okay, but what if you've had really a really hard year on the home front, as many of us have? What if you've lost a loved one, or they've moved away, or you won't be able to see them for one reason or another this year? Is there still a reason to celebrate? If presents, or giving, or family is the reason for the season, then there might not be a reason to celebrate this year. But if Jesus is the reason for the season, then there's always a reason to celebrate, right? Amen, all the Christians say. And they post it on Facebook, right? Put it on a coffee mug. Jesus is the reason for the season. We celebrate Him. But hold on a second. Let's go a little bit deeper in our thinking than a Facebook status update. Let's think this through. What about Jesus are we celebrating this holiday season? You might say, well, we're celebrating Jesus' birth. Christmas is all about Jesus' birth. Okay, but let's go further. What about Jesus' birth are we celebrating? What about Christ's birth makes it worth celebrating? Even if we were to acknowledge that Christmas is all about Christ, what is the significance of the incarnation of God becoming a man? If you listen to the radio, you'll think Christ's birth is all about world peace. That Jesus came to show us a better way, a way of international peace and of war, a way of getting along with each other, a way of armistice and not animosity. But is that the mission that God has in Christ? Others would say that Christ came for our self-assurance. For example, there is a clip of a politician's speech being shared online right now that's being labeled as the biblical message of Christmas. In that speech, the politician, one of our past presidents, 
said, this is a holiday that celebrates the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, an event that teaches that all of us are children of God. That's the true source of joy this time of year. This is what makes Christmas merry. Is that the biblical message of Christmas? Is that why Jesus came? To reassure us that all of us are children of God. To give us self-assurance. The answer is no. We don't celebrate the birth of Christ this season because it means an earthly armistice or because it means self-assurance. We celebrate the birth of Christ this season because it means a heavenly adoption. That's the reason why we celebrate. Believe it or not, this is the good news of Christmas. As we'll see this morning from the Word of God, it's not armistice, it's not assurance, it's adoption. Jesus Christ came to earth not just to be born, but to live and to die and to rise again so that through His perfect life and death on our behalf, He could make us, who were once slaves of sin, sons of God. We'll see that this morning in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. We've got three simple points for our outline this morning that you can follow along with. We'll see first, really back into verse 3, and then in the beginning of verse 4, the moment of the Incarnation. That is, what was special about the moment that God the Son became a man? We'll see that at the beginning of verse 4. Then at the end of verse 4, we're going to see the manner. We're going to consider the manner of the incarnation. What makes that event so miraculous and so full of wonder? And then finally in verse 5, we're going to look at the mission of the incarnation. Why did God the Son come to earth? Why did He come? So the moment, the manner, and the mission of the incarnation. With that in mind, let's read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 for context. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Galatians 4, starting verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the Word of God whose testimonies we have long known are founded forever. And so in our desire to receive this as the Word of God, let's pray. Father, we thank You. For the truth set before us today. Father, we thank you that this passage reminds us of your sovereign hand over the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it shows us your sovereignty. We thank you that it shows us your glory and your power. We thank You that it shows us Your purpose in this world for us. Father, we pray that these truths would be the ones that resonate in our hearts over this next week. That our focus would be supremely on 
Him who is above all. God, give us grace to understand Your Word today so that it might change us and make us more a people of worship for this next week than we were in the week previous. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we consider the wonder of Christmas, the first truth that we should consider this morning is the miraculous moment of the Incarnation. That's at the beginning of verse 4 where it says, but when the fullness of time had come. Now notice, by starting off with the word but, our author, the Apostle Paul, is making a clear contrast between the way things were before Christ and the way things are now. So in our desire to understand the moment of the Incarnation, we should ask ourselves the question, what, are, what, were, the, what were things like before the fullness of time came? Before Christ came as a man? Before the Incarnation? Paul tells us in the previous verse, back in verse 3, he writes, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul here is making a correlation between a cultural idea that he introduced back in verses 1 through 2 and the state of someone who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. See, back in verses 1 through 2, Paul makes the simple point that in that ancient Greco-Roman culture, a small child, even if he was to be the recipient of a huge inheritance, inheritance waiting for him he only received that inheritance and entered into the blessings of that inheritance when he grew up when he became mature until then his legal rights and status in that culture was only as good as a slave which is to say none at all Therefore, verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So here's the truth that Paul is presenting. Before a person comes to Christ, before they are made wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, they have as much rights to God's inheritance and God's blessings, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you have as much rights to God's inheritance and God's blessing as a child did back in the ancient culture, which is to say they didn't have any at all. Now they were still loved, children were back then, and they were still given basic protection and provision, but legally, in terms of the inheritance, they legally weren't even in the family yet. And that's exactly what God is saying in verses 1 through 3. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and His perfect work on the cross alone for your salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins, listen, God loves you. And every day He imparts to you basic provisions and protections out of His own goodness and mercy. But let's be clear, you are not in God's family yet. Until you submit your life to Jesus Christ, you can lay no claim on God being your Father. And you still have no rights to God's inheritance, God's kingdoms, God's heaven, or God's special blessings. All of that comes through Christ Jesus. We hear it expressed so often by those around us, don't we? I want to be blessed by God. I want Him to hear my prayers I want Him to give me joy and happiness, comfort and strength, purpose and meaning. I want all of these gifts. And I get angry at God if I don't have them. But I do not want to submit to Jesus Christ as the saving sovereign of my life. Well, listen, Jesus is the only way to God's blessings. As Ephesians 1.3 states, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is only yours in Christ Jesus. 
Christ is the doorway to all of God's blessings. As he himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Until you submit your life to Jesus Christ in faith, you have no basis to lay your hand on God's inheritance and blessings, God's promises, God's protections, God's comfort, or God's eternal life. You're not in His family yet. In fact, until you trust in Christ and submit your life to Him, you're a slave. As Paul says here in verse 3, outside of Christ, you are enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. You say, well, what in the world are those? (laughs) Well, later in verse 9, Paul makes it clear that those principles, those rules, are those that the Galatian believers were tempted to put themselves back under again. And what were those rules? Verse 21 says it was the law. That was what the Galatians were enslaved to before they trusted in Christ. They were enslaved to the law of God. Or you could put it this way, they were condemned by the law. And that's the point that Paul has been making leading up to our passage this morning. Before a person trusts in Christ for salvation, they are enslaved and they are condemned by the most elementary expression of God's righteousness as seen in the law. See, most people look at the Ten Commandments and they think to themselves, man, that is so high, that is so hard, that is so demanding, so difficult. But do you realize that the Old Testament law is simply God's righteousness expressed at the most elementary level to man? The Old Testament is just the ABCs of God's righteousness. His righteousness is infinitely higher than anything you have ever read in the Old Testament. That's how holy God is. This is exactly what Jesus showed when He first came to earth and He preached His very own first Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 where He said things like this, You have heard that it was said you shall not murder. Where did He hear that? Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, insults, and says you fool to his brother will be liable to hell. In other words, God's righteousness is way higher than you're thinking it is. And again, Jesus taught you have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery. Where'd they hear that? Ten commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And Jesus keeps on saying things like this throughout his sermon. You have heard that it is said, but I say to you, God's righteousness is way beyond that. You've misunderstood what the Ten Commandments are actually teaching. See, the Old Testament law is just the elementary principles of God's righteousness communicated to man. And Paul is saying this in verse 3. Man, how sad is it that we're enslaved to that? And he's right. If we're to be honest with ourselves, every day we flunk even the elementary principles of what God has said is right and wrong. None of us love God with all of our heart, soul, minds, and strength. None of us have given God the undiminished love and worship that He deserves. None of us have treated Him with the reverence that His glory and His matchless character demands. None of us have made the worship and service of God first place in our plans and in our schedules and in our calendars. All of us have disobeyed authorities that are over us. We've all gotten angry. We've all lusted. We've all stolen. We've all lied. We've all coveted. As Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken His law. And therefore, we're condemned by it. That's what Romans 6.23 means when it says the wages of sin is death. 
As Paul says even earlier in in Galatians 3.10, we are all under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. That is the way it is for every person before they come to Christ. We can't please the holy God by our works. Even at the most elementary level, we are slaves of sin in bondage to it, and therefore left to ourselves, we're hopelessly enslaved to the condemnation of our sins. We're doomed, cursed, cut off from God because of our bondage to sin. We are outside His family. But that's when the good news comes. Because it is at this moment, when we are without hope in this world, that hope came to us from outside this world. God, as it says here in verse 4, sent forth His Son. And he did it at the perfect moment, as verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come. God sent his son into this world at the fullness of time. That is, at the perfect moment. And it really was the perfect moment from four different perspectives. Really quickly, I want to touch on. First, I want you to consider that Jesus came at the perfect moment at the right time spiritually. The nation of Israel, if you study the Old Testament, they were addicted to idolatry. Well, guess what? They were purged of that addiction through their captivity at Babylon. When they were finally, And so when they finally came back to their land for the 400 years leading up to Jesus' arrival, Israel was simply looking forward to God's promises and they were longing to find the, their fulfillment. That's why even when John the Baptist come around, comes around and starts preaching, they walk up to him saying, are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Right? So it was the right moment spiritually. They were, they were ready. It was also the right moment linguistically. Speaking of languages, right? Due to Alexander the Great's conquest, the Greek language was the universal language of every people group in the known world at that time. It was a universal language to communicate a universal message. And Koine Greek, by the way, and here I'm geeking out a little bit, is one of the most precise languages that has ever been created. So it was perfectly, so it was perfect for accurately communicating and carrying out the final revelation of God to man worldwide. So it was the right moment spiritually. It was the right moment linguistically. You could also say it was the right moment culturally. The Romans, with their Pax Romana, they imposed a powerful peace upon the entire known world at that time and through their global trade networks created a system of roads highways and shipping lanes that were unparalleled until the modern era in other words there was a network of transportation in place that would enable the fast and thorough spread of the gospel so it was the right moment spiritually it was the right moment linguistically it was the right moment culturally but i want you to understand that that's only because it was the right moment divinely God was the one that was orchestrating all the details that I had just mentioned. Though if you had been living in those moments, you might not have seen it. Right? He's the one who raised up Babylon to purge Israel of their idolatry. He's the one who raised up Alexander the Great to establish a universal means of communication. He was the one that raised up Rome to create a worldwide peace through which the good news of Jesus Christ could run. God determined when the fullness of time would be and He brought it all to pass. And He brought it all to pass slowly, often imperceptibly, but perfectly. But perfectly. As Daniel 2.21 says, He appoints times and seasons. He removes kings and He sets up kings. You see this in the Christmas story that we're going to read this Wednesday night. 
God's the one who made Caesar Augustus decree that all the world should be taxed at just the right moment so that his son would be born in Bethlehem just as God through the prophet Micah prophesied 700 years earlier. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from the days of even eternity. God did all of that. What a reminder is Psalms 31 verse 15 states that our times are in His hands. And we must not forget that. We see that with the coming of Christ. God has not changed, beloved. God was sovereign over every detail of world affairs back then. He is sovereign over every detail of world events even now. All things are working together for God's eternal glory and our eternal good if we belong to Him. Everything that's happening in the world today, beloved, is part of God's plan. It might be happening slowly. We might be thinking it's happening even imperceptibly, but it is happening perfectly. Again, if you'd have been living during the time of Christ, you wouldn't have noticed the flow until after it happened. So it is right now. So it is right now. God is in control and He is working all things out according to His eternal purpose. Things aren't falling apart. Though people in Babylon, during the Babylonian captivity thought that, people during the Greek conquest thought that, people during the Roman captivity thought that, things are not falling apart. Things are actually falling together into God's perfect plan. Remember that. This is the miraculous moment of the incarnation, but when the fullness of time had come. Next, let's consider the manner of the incarnation. That's at the end part of verse 4 where Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. This is the means by which God works to remedy our problem of our slavery to sin that we've just talked about. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is the manner of the incarnation. It is the manner in which Christ came. And we see here that Jesus came as fully God, fully man, and fully obedient. So first, verse 4 says that Jesus, when He came, He was fully God. It says, God sent forth His Son. This statement emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. God did not create His Son, notice. He simply sent Him forth. The Son was already there. It's John chapter 1, verse 2, which we read this morning in our Scripture reading, states, He was in the beginning with God. He was already present. Jesus is fully God. As Colossians 1.19 states, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was and is fully God. The second member of the Trinity. He is infinite in His glory and His person. After all, the angel said in Matthew chapter 1, we don't often think about it, right? You shall call His name Jesus. And that name, Jesus, literally means Yahweh who saves. Jesus is Yahweh come to save. He is fully God. That's why the very next verse in Matthew says all this took place. Even the naming of Jesus to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yahweh who saves. Jesus in His incarnation was fully God. Fully God. Second, Jesus was fully man. We're told here that God sent forth His Son how? He was born of woman. 
In other words, he was fully man. He was fully a human. Every human being who's ever been born has been born of a woman, and Jesus was born of a woman just like you and I, right? But not just any woman. Jesus had to have a precise genealogy. According to Genesis 3.15, Jesus had to come from the line of, the Savior had to come from the line of Adam, right? For it was from Adam's line that God would bring an offspring of a woman to crush the serpent's head. And then out of all the descendants of Adam, there had to be a Messiah who would come, according to Genesis 9.27, from the line of Shem, who was Noah's son. Because it was from the tents of Shem that God was promised to dwell. And then out of all the descendants that Shem ever had, which is basically the entire Middle East, right? The Christ had to come from the line of Abraham, according to Genesis 22.18. For God promised to Abraham that from him would come an offspring through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then of the eight children that Abraham had, according to Genesis 26, verse 4, the Messiah had to come from the line of Isaac, who alone received his father's blessing. And then out of the two sons of Isaac... The Savior had to come out of the line of Jacob. And then out of the 12 sons of Jacob, the promised king had to come out of Judah's line. And then out of all the descendants of Judah, according to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, the Messiah had to come from the line of King David. And I could just keep on going this morning. I mean, this is amazingly precise prophecies regarding who would be qualified to be the Messiah. And so if Jesus was to be the Messiah, as predicted in Scripture, the promised King and Savior sent from God, he had to prove it by being a part of a very precise genealogy. And so we read in Matthew 1.1, which often causes our eyes to glaze over, we all of a sudden read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the Holy Spirit follows the path of the Messianic path all the way through to Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac was born Jacob, to Jacob was born Judah, and it flows all the way down to verse 16 of Matthew 1 where it records to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is now called Christ. Jesus had the exact genealogy. Because not only was he 100% God, he was also 100% man. He is the conquering seed of the woman promised to Adam. He's the incarnate God with us as promised to Shem. He's the worldwide descendant of blessing as promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's the eternal king as promised to Judah. He's the divine son as promised to David. This is the wonderful miracle of the incarnation. That Jesus is 100% God. And he is 100% man. And he had to be. He had to be. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. You see, for Jesus to be able to save us, he had to be a man. Because only a man can take man's place and die man's death. But yet he also had to be God, for only an infinite being can absorb the infinite wrath of an infinite God. And only a being of infinite worth can die a death of infinite value to pay the price for our infinite sin. We needed a man and we needed God. And that was found in Jesus. This is the miracle of Christmas. It's not about a baby. It's about who the baby is and what he has come to do. He came to deliver us from our bondage to sin. He had to be a man because only man can die and he had to be God because only God can overpower death. Jesus is both. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And he is 100% the type of person that we need. One who can bear all of our sin in his own body on the tree. But in order for Jesus to be our Savior, 
He needed to be more than just fully God and fully man. And that brings us to the third truth concerning the manner of the incarnation and that this fully God and this fully man, Jesus, was also fully obedient. As the end of verse 4 says, Jesus was not only born of a woman, he was also born under the law. See, this is remarkable. Jesus was like every other man in that he had the responsibility to obey God's law. But Jesus was unlike every other man in that he obeyed it perfectly. (laughs) He was born under the same law that enslaved everybody else. And yet, rather than being enslaved to its condemnation himself, he perfectly fulfilled that. Is that important? Absolutely. For if Jesus had not been wholly innocent and undefiled, as Hebrews 7 verse 26 says, then he could have never been a lamb without blemish and without spot. And and his death that he would have died would have been death for his own sins, not ours. But because Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law as a man, that means the perfect death that he died, he died for us also. Christ's track record of perfect obedience is now available as a substitute for us sinners. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, Jesus knew no sin. Though tempted in all points, just like us, he was without sin. As Hebrews 4.15 says, he was fully obedient. Fully obedient. Jesus testified on earth, I always do the will of my Father in heaven. And he challenged his opponents, which one of you can accuse me of sin? And they couldn't. Unlike us, who are slaves of sin, and we prove it every single week, Jesus in his incarnation was fully obedient to God. Fully obedient. And when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. In Christ, God sees us just as if we knew no sin. In Christ, God treats us as if we were without sin. In Christ, God loves us as if we always did his will. In Christ, God sees us as absolutely pure and perfect. Not because of our track record, but because of Christ's, a track record of absolute, full obedience in our place. That's the manner of the incarnation. Fully God, fully man, fully obedient. And so when we were hopelessly enslaved by the condemnation of our sins, God in love sent forth His Son into this world, fully God, fully man, and fully obedient. He was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But why? Why? Was it to make peace and not war? Was it to tell us not to worry because we're all God's children anyway? What was the mission of the Incarnation? What was the mission of the Incarnation? Paul tells us it was to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, in other words, Jesus came in a rescue mission. That's why He came. He came not to reassure us that we were already in God's family, but to redeem us because we're not. Right? We're told here that Jesus Christ was born and He was sent from the Father for this purpose, to redeem those who were under the law. That word redeem means to buy back and it communicates the picture of a slave market. See, when a man is, was, when man was originally created, he was a son of God and he was an heir of God's blessings. But when he fell into sin, he became a slave of sin and an heir of sin's condemnation. And we prove that ourselves by our own actions each and every day. 
And so God sent Jesus Christ to this earth to buy us out of the slave market of sin and to set us free and make us sons as adopted in God's family. And so catch the picture, right? We're enslaved We're enslaved to the law. We are being dragged away by God's righteous law because of our sin towards eternal death. And in that moment, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ comes and he declares, I'll pay the price for their sins. I'll pay the price for their freedom. And that's why Jesus came. Not to reassure us of our blessed state because we didn't have any, but to rescue us from our condemnation and sin. Because you can't be a son until your sin is dealt with. You can't be a son until your sin is dealt with. And Jesus came to pay the debt necessary to make us free, to set us free from our sin's condemnation. He came to redeem. And He did all of this. He was born, He lived, He died on a cross. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. See, Jesus came not to reassure us that we're already in His family, but to redeem us because we were not. Jesus came down from where He was to where we are so that He might lift us up from where we were to where He is. As C.S. Lewis wrote, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's the mission of the Incarnation. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because from the infinitely loving heart of the Father, a son was given a child was born so that many more sons might be gained. Jesus made a way whereby all those who trust in Him might receive adoption into God's family as sons. Not as young children. Not as slaves, but as sons. That is, recipients of God's blessings. Heirs of His inheritance, of His kingdom, of His heaven, of His special blessings, of His eternal life. As the next two verses, verse through six through seven, state, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, an heir of God adopted into his family. All of this is made possible, but only through the gift of redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And notice the word, You've got to receive it. You've got to receive it, God says. You've got to go to Him and you've got to accept His gift. It's not yours by default. You are a slave to sin by default. You've got to receive this adoption as sons. You've got to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Embrace His perfect life and His perfect work on the cross is the only way of salvation and you will be adopted into God's family. As John 1.12 states so beautifully, but to all who do receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to be called children of God. So while people all across this world will be celebrating Christmas this week for all the wrong reasons, Let's make sure that this is the reason we are celebrating this year. There's only one true reason to celebrate Christmas this week. It's not because of presents. It's not because of giving. It's not because of family. Let's celebrate Christmas this week because we've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came from the Father to this earth, not for an earthly armistice or for personal self-assurance, but for heavenly adoption. Jesus came from the Father 
to redeem you from your sins, to make you a son of God. Let's make sure we've received that gift and let's make sure we celebrate it this week for the glory of God. In preparation for this, this is the word of God from Galatians 4, 1 through 7, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience and the fervent care of one another in the celebration of our Savior's birth this week until Christ's second advent comes. To that end, let's pray. Father, what words can we say when we consider the marvel of your providence, when we consider the miracle of your power, and we consider the graciousness of your purpose in the birth of Christ. Help us not to have a small view of Jesus or His work this week. Help us to have a glorious view of Your hand in the affairs of men. Help us to have a glorious view of Christ, His person, His obedience. Help us to have a glorious view of His purpose, His mission, the salvation of we enjoy through faith in Him. May that be the gift that we are dedicated in giving to others this week. A knowledge of You, a knowledge of Christ, and a knowledge of salvation through faith in Him. May You use us this week, Father. May You use us this week to bring even just one slave of sin to becoming a son of God. Give us grace towards this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.